So this week, we're going to continue asking the question we were asking last week. What is the point of Lent? And the reason why I'm continuing to ask this is because it's a way of exploring the basics of our Christian faith. Now, last week, Father Sean reminded us that Lent is a time to refocus on going to God for aid. It's meant to be this this strong, concentrated, mini-experience of the whole Christian life. And through the epistle lesson today, and how conveniently, the psalm, uh, we're going to see how Lent drives us to relationship with God. We're going to explore that in three areas. Lent drives us towards relationship with God by allowing us space to look our sin full in the face. It affords us scheduled time to bring our sin to God. And it reminds us our salvation is not grounded in our works. So first, the Christian life and looking at sin full in the face Now, I'm going to broadly group sin into two areas. We have original sin on one hand, and we have committed sin, both personal and communal on the other. Now, as you may be aware, original sin is what we inherit from Adam. As Christians located in Western culture, Original sin often causes us some theological distress. We, we are used to thinking of individuals and dealing with individuals and thinking individualistically, and therefore we consider it unjust to be pain for Adam's sin. And if that's what original sin was, we'd be right. And not only would it be unjust, but as Deuteronomy 24, 16, and Ezekiel 18, 19 through 20 make very clear, it's unbiblical. These passages assure us that God does not hold the children accountable for the father's sin. Original sin is really about a damaged familial relationship with God. Here's how the fall is processed from a relational understanding of what happened. This this is far more easy to conceive for people in, say, Middle Eastern cultures or African cultures. Adam is the head of his family. When he sinned, he not only broke his relationship with God, but he broke his whole family's relationship with God. Everyone's in trouble. So original sin is nothing more than that broken familial relationship which we inherit as a result of being descendants of Adam. Now what I'm calling committed sin is the fruit of our sinful nature, our bend towards sinning, of choosing our will over God's will, over our relationship with God, So the the issue with committed sin really is our sin nature, our desire to sin. It's our relational dysfunction of desiring things other than God and his will. Now the acts 
which the Bible calls sin, we commit because of that relational dysfunction is a symptom of a deeper problem. This is why you see God say things like in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, that his solution for Israel's sin is not just obedience, but a brand new heart. He says, I will put a new heart in you. He has to address their affections and their desires in order to solve the problem of their behavior. And so it is with us. This is significant because we're dealing with a relational condition, our desire to sin, not our acts of sin themselves. And as a result, God only has to address that condition, our desire to sin, once by forgiving and adopting us as his children. Now, once the underlying condition is addressed, then each sin we commit will not destroy our relationship with God. Instead of having to repent and be rebaptized to reestablish relationship, we can repent of our actions because we have relationship and remember our identity as sons and daughters. This identity is protected by Jesus' actions and choices, not our own. For Christians, Repentance isn't about restoring relationship. You have that. The Holy Spirit secures that. Repentance and belief is what non-Christians do to restore relationship. For Christians, repentance is about bringing us back into alignment with the will of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer expresses this well in many of his writings as he emphasizes that the goal of the Christian life is not about avoiding sin, but rather doing the will of God. When we look sin full in the face, it is an uncomfortable and even scary prospect. And because of that, most of us only take glances. Looking at our sin is hard. It's especially hard if no one has ever come alongside us to teach us how to look at our sin, we come to it ill-prepared. God doesn't want us to be ill-prepared. And in today's passage in Romans, St. Paul is referencing two Old Testament figures, Abraham and King David. I want to start with King David because he has lessons for us about looking at our sin. In Romans 4, 7, and 8, Paul quotes Psalm 32, where David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David is rejoicing because God has forgiven his sin. And he says that a person whose sin is forgiven is blessed. David can only truly celebrate the forgiveness because he's looked at his sin. The King David's sin here he's referencing is his adultery with Bathsheba. He talks about it in his psalm, Psalm 32, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. 
the psalm especially is reflecting on how being in relationship with God when he looked at his sin shaped that hard work. Psalm 32, verses 6 and 7 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God shows us great kindness by holding up sins before us so that we may look them full in the face. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, incidentally, written by David's son Solomon, who is also born of Bathsheba, says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Part of our life in Christ highlighted in Lent is that when we are in relationship with Jesus, he is a constantly attending to our healing and our growth. The Holy Spirit is moving us from brokenness to wholeness. Quite often, the first step in healing is to look at that sin and know the brokenness. Like I said, that's hard. But I believe God does this because by knowing the brokenness before the healing comes, we will know God deeper after the healing has arrived. By knowing the brokenness, and I'm not talking perfectly knowing it, or in every aspect or detail, often it's just general. We see by knowing that after the healing comes what he wants for us. We see his heart. And because of that, we grow in depth of relationship with him. King David describes the state that God allowed him to sit in before his repentance like this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Our second aspect of Christian life that Lent helps us walk through is bringing our sin to God. God knows this isn't easy either. And so he gives us aid in the midst of this process through more relationships. The practice of confessing our sins to another person is not something I think most of us have grown up with. It's probably a little unfamiliar. At least it is for me. I didn't grow up with it. I've done it, and I've found it to me immensely helpful at times. <laughs> it's not something I get excited about, though. I'd much rather keep my sins between myself and God and instead of examining them fully with him, just rely on the fact that he already knows my sin. Maybe you feel the same. And you know what? Satan loves when we hide our sin. Father Aaron Damiani points out in the book 
the good of giving up, discovering the freedom of Lent, which we're discussing here on Sunday mornings. Satan, the enemy of our souls, suggests to us that we cannot afford to let our sin or the sins of others committed against us to be exposed. Secrecy of our sins keeps us away from all the help God has intended us to have in looking at our sin and confessing our sin so we might be healed. When we keep our sin hidden and hang on to it, we rot from the inside out. And if you're struggling with sin, one of the fastest ways to take the teeth out of that struggle is to share it with someone. As soon as you bring that into the light, that sin is weakened. Share with a godly person who you know can listen and then preach the gospel to you. Secrecy is damaging. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. God knows that it's hard to bring our sin to him. So he directs us through St. James to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In the face of that confession, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Our role to play when someone comes and exposes their sin to us is that we might help them take that sin to God. To do that is to be there with that person, exercising what St. Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that look like? But when we help people take their sin to God, our job is proclaim the gospel and reiterate God's assurance of forgiveness. God has focused us on reaching out with news of his son, Jesus, to non-Christians lately, and we've been talking about that. Now, I'm fairly confident that most of us have not been exposed to a constant interaction with new Christians surrounding us who are walking through repentance at the beginning of their new life. If God's about to do what I think he is, what I pray he is, to start bringing new believers, truly new believers into our congregation, that's going to be a new experience, at least for me. I don't know about you. Hopefully you've seen that before. Repentance and the accompanying cleansing isn't a momentary event. It's a process, and as they learn about who Jesus is and who they are now, we'll need to be conscious that our ministry of reconciliation does not involve judging how quickly they are growing or how much baggage they have left to let go or superficial appearances and mannerisms left over from our old, their old life. Let's be honest, we have plenty of all that ourselves. I want to turn to Abraham now, because we've talked about how Lent helps us look at our sin, 
and bring it to God. But we haven't yet talked about how Lent emphasizes a key message in our Christian life, an important part of the gospel, that our salvation is not grounded in our works. As we talk about last week, it's tempting as we choose Lenten fasts and devotional acts, acts which are meant to form our souls and draw us closer into God, to instead look for ways to work towards God. St. Paul is passionate about that. In fact, in Galatians, St. Paul expresses his livid, livid anger about the Judaizers, people teaching that salvation comes through Christ and our obedience to the law, saying he wishes they would emasculate themselves. Paul hates adding works to Christ's work for you. In the Romans passage, St. Paul points to Abraham to show the kindness of God and making sure our works have nothing to do with securing our salvation. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Here, Paul is laying out the underlying principle of a works righteousness model. If our works earn us salvation, earn us righteousness, it's a transaction. We pay God for, with our works, and he gives us what we paid for, righteousness, which means right standing with God, being in right relationship. This is the catch, though. If we have to pay for right relationship with God, we're responsible for maintaining that relationship. Think of it this way. If you earn your salvation with works, you're paying a subscription. It's like when you pay for Netflix or the newspaper. As long as you pay, they provide the service. But what happens when you stop paying? When you don't send the money, the newspaper doesn't show up. So you do what you have to do again, right? You pay up, you subscribe. If you know anyone who's wanted to be rebaptized or is constantly worried about losing their salvation because they sinned, they're often working off of a works righteousness model, even if they don't realize it. They've identified their acts of sin rather than their sin nature as the problem, and therefore they must work to not sin in order to stay in relationship with God. That's works righteousness. Now, if Abraham had paid for his righteousness with works, then God would have given it to him as his wages. That's what God owed him. That is, until Abraham sinned again. And then that relationship disappears as easy as smoke in the wind. But what does Paul say? 
He says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God doesn't want you to pay for a temporary relationship with him. He wants you to enjoy an eternal, unshakable relationship with him. And that is exactly what Jesus has secured for you through his life, death, and resurrection. He maintains this relationship. He maintains his relationship with God the Father in his life. And he pays for the debt our sins have incurred in his death, restoring our relationship with the Father, and he secures for us ultimate healing in his resurrection. When we believe in him, all this and more is the blessing that God has for us. Now, when I say believe, I want to make a distinction. Mental assent, believing in God, as a factual reality is not what I'm talking about. St. James reminds us that even the demons believe God in this way. If you're here today because you're trying to maintain your relationship with God by conforming, by showing up and being for him, by letting him see that you choose him, and hoping or expecting that he'll pay you with righteousness for the good works you have done, the service you have rendered him, You are on a fool's errand and you're destined for utter separation from him for all time. You cannot pay your way into relationship with him. It's too expensive and we are all broke. Lent isn't a time for self-help or improvement. It, like all of Christian life, holds up the mirror and shouts at you, you are broken. You need someone to save you. Listen to your heart. Take account of your good deeds and your desires. You know that we're all broke. We have too much pain in this life from our own sin and the sin that others have committed against us to miss it. We will either face our sin and take it to God or hide from it and perish. And you cannot face your sin alone. It's too great for you. To be free of it, Christ must face it with you. Christ must face it for you. Part of the Christian life is remembering this occasionally and knowing that we pick righteousness up and try and carry it ourselves sometimes. And God wants us to remember, stop that. That's not the yoke I have for you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Put that down. Let me carry that for you. To believe in him who justifies the ungodly means to trust him with your soul, to admit you cannot pay for your relationship with him and ask him to restore it and secure it for you. This gets us back to our discussion of original sin. 
in relational cultures, once a relationship is broken, only the party who has been offended has the power to restore it. They're the only ones left with any relational collateral. But that costs something. This is why Jesus, the one who was offended, had to join the offenders. Mankind is a little baby. This is one of the reasons why the incarnation is so important. He must be part of our family if he's to reconcile us to the Father, if he's to be the new Adam that we may come in behind. And yet, he must be one with the Father and have a properly ordered right relationship in his own righteousness to make any of that reconciliation possible. The incarnation, Jesus fully God and fully man, has to be true in order for a righteousness to be restored, and thank God that it is. Since we have a relationship with God the Father through God the Son, the second Adam, we are blessed. And we use that term blessed a lot as Christians. Do you know what blessed means in the Bible? It's a mark of the divine attention of God towards something. In the Old Testament, blessing is associated with the proximity of God to you. When you are blessed, God turns his face to you. This is the specific blessing that God instructs Aaron to use for the people of Israel, found in Numbers 6, 22 through 27. It goes, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Each line of this blessing that God has given to man that we might use and know him deeper is the exact same thing. But as you march through the line, they go one level deeper each time. The Lord bless you. To be blessed is to have God turn his face towards you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. His face is turned to you with favor and grace. Unmerited favor is extended to you. The Lord lift up his countenance. What do we say? Lifted up countenance. It is a happy countenance. It is a joyful countenance. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. When God looks at you and acts towards you with unmerited favor, it brings peace. Maybe you've looked at your own life and have said, I want this peace and I do not have it. Now, it it may be that you're actually looking for happiness and you don't realize that you do have the peace. It's already yours. You just haven't had someone sit down with you and help you put your finger on it and identify it. But if you have not believed in him who justifies the ungodly, you will not have peace at all. A moment for linguistics. As St. Paul references King David's psalm, quoting, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
he uses the strongest possible way in Greek to express the truth that God will not count sin against the righteous one. Bruce Metzger, a New Testament scholar uh, and Greek scholar, deep Greek scholar, translates it as, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not at all count against him, will never, ever, ever, for all eternity counts against him. This form is called the um, negative subjunctive. I only mention it because it's important that linguistically this negative subjunctive deals with a potential. It hasn't happened yet. So St. Paul isn't talking about the sin you committed when you were five or 17 or last year or last week. He's talking about that the sin you have committed, all of it, and the sin that maybe you're committing right now. And every sin you will ever commit in your life If you've believed in Jesus, the one who justifies the ungodly and restores their relationship with the triune God, making them righteous, no sin, past, present, or future, will ever be held against you. For Christ has paid for that sin, and you have been washed white as snow. God's face is turned towards you. You have been forgiven. And you enjoy his unmerited favor. And peace is yours to rest in. If you don't know that peace, if you want to know that peace more deeply, Lent is a time where, just as in the whole Christian life, we are invited to look at our sin, look it in the face, and take it to God, and reveal it to his forgiveness and his healing. Let's talk more about this if right now you find your soul hungering for that cleanness, that forgiveness, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. It's the mark of his love for you so that he can heal you and give you your freedom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.